Welcome to the More Freedom Foundation podcast, answering the difficult questions, Robert Morris, and asking the stupid questions, Rory McElhone. Hello, Rory. How's it going? It's going well. Just getting back to work after the holidays. How are you getting on, Rob? Uh, not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, New York has reverted back to its uh, early spring January weather, so it's been quite pleasant uh, running around. And uh, Europe's done something rather similar. It's uh, quite mild. I think it's maybe s- 7 degrees. So what's that? Uh, no, tw- 21? Or sorry, I think it's about 40 cel- or Fahrenheit that would be. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I never figured out how to do that math, but I have seen headlines indicating that Europe's going through like a once-in-a-lifetime heat wave. Uh, Poland was 19 degrees, which is 66 Fahrenheit. My gosh, okay. Yeah, that is uh, that is not January weather. No. I, it's sort of a refrain I've had on Twitter, is sort of, God hates Putin. Yes, because uh, Russia's getting a bit of a cold snap. I know there's parts of Russia that are always cold, but it uh, seems like it's heading for Moscow. Uh, well, the thing is, if if Europe has a warm winter, as it has been having, an unseasonably warm winter, means they need less gas. Well, it's also, they're ready for a cold winter, and it looks like they won't need as much, so it's like uh, uh, Europe's double safe, which could also make the fighting difficult. They say if it's sort of wet and kind of like at around freezing and a bit wet, it's very difficult to fight in. While if it gets a good bit below freezing, it, the ground can freeze and you can make some mobilization. But yeah, everything's going terrible for the Russians. But sadly, it's still, even though Ukraine is, looks like it's progressing, it's still horrific. The problem, of course, is that at a certain point, uh, you, you've got to go from, well, <laughs> God hates Putin with this weather to like, oh, geez. Uh, God hates all of us because uh, it, it, it's actually important for a range of things uh, for the northern hemisphere to experience winter uh, at at some point. We we don't appear to be doing that so much, which is uh, very exciting uh, this year for limited geostrategic uh, reasons. But uh, if we have many more winters like this, uh, it's 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 rather grim on a range well, of levels. Well, the UK had its uh, warmest year on record. Its average temperature was 10 degrees, which was up from 9 degrees. Well, what I found so interesting was that we had a cold snap, which was, I believe, by any measure, a, a huge cold snap in the United States. But it lasted about a week um, out of, uh, what, we're on month three of winter, depending on how you measure it. And it lasted about a week, and it, it, it's, it strikes me that when we have the sort of winter weather that was normal or run-of-the-mill uh, in the New York area when I was a child, uh, it's, it's national news, and it's this horrific shock that we have experienced even a single week of what I uh, assume to be normal winter. I, you know, I, I, I've got a pair of winter boots that I purchased 20 years ago uh, that I really only have to use every three years now. Uh, and they've lasted that long because of it. So anyway, it's troubling. It's troubling. It is concerning. Indeed. And it actually gets to uh, the whole concept of government. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not malfeasance, but gov- government overreach. Uh, well, no, actually government neglect. Underreach. The inverse of that, government underreach, which is something that I've been, uh, through much of my life, I've been a big fan of uh, and in some ways can still appreciate, uh, but uh, can also now, uh, in my advanced years, see the very real drawbacks to. Uh, So what I want to talk about today, Rory, in general, is libertarianism, which is something I was once a fervent advocate for and have now fallen very deeply out of love with. Um, And I thought that would be an interesting thing to discuss today. Interesting. Are you aware of the show um, Succession? I am aware of it. I watched the first episode. was like, these people seem like pricks. And uh, then I stopped. They're all horrible. That's what's wonderful. Yes, I, I get that. That is the the humor. It's the Murdoch family, right? It's a it's an HBO. It's yes. It's they're not quite the Murdochs. There's a little bit of a Disney and all sorts thrown in, but they have an eldest son mm-hmm. who is basically told at one point that 
daddy's not giving you any more money. <laughs> and at that point, he is very interested in libertarianism. Interesting. Interesting. I don't understand the connection there. Well, it's sort of like suddenly when you come into wealth and you have to pay taxes, the idea of libertarianism uh, suddenly seems like a, a very good one. So he's already got a lot of money, but... He's got a lot of money, but the gravy train's ending. Uh, so he's going to just have to... What he's currently got is going to have to do him for the rest of his life. That makes sense. So he's got to he's got to really really hold on to it. Yes. Uh, and what's interesting about that instinct is it is very 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 widespread in the United States. But I think, as we can see with the climate, as we can see with a range of things over the past forty years, that that eventually gets to be a self. Uh, sabotaging instinct to this idea that you know you support libertarian causes, libertarian philosophy, libertarian government, you can eventually create problems that are so massive that uh, you uh, end up losing that money, losing that stake that you're trying to protect. For example, I don't think Bernie Sanders would have been as viable a political candidate as he was back in 2016 if it weren't for the prior 36 years of libertarian government in the United States. A lot of people would argue that the both governments aren't really libertarian and the only true one is the libertarian party. Sure. That's a, a classic a classic argument is that, you know, true libertarianism has never been tried. And I think that that's certainly a central argument. Uh, for the libertarians of today, and it's something that I believed for quite some time. What attracted me to libertarianism in the first place was that that moral clarity, that idea that you know we've got answers that nobody else is going to give you, that everyone else is too afraid to give you. And and frankly, some of the answers on certain topics are good ones. I still think that the Libertarian Party has probably the best platform when it comes to criminal justice, when it comes to, well, I'm not sure if you know today's official Libertarian Party does. They're sort of falling down a number of black holes. But the classical libertarian ideals around criminal justice are certainly things that have never been ob observed and are good ideas. Classical libertarian ideas around uh, war and foreign intervention are things that I still believe in fervently. What are these uh, classical ideas around uh, crime and punishment? Simply that most drugs should be legal. Uh, the very idea of police forces as they've grown and sort of metastasized over the past century are unnecessary and excessive. Um, as I've said, the Libertarian Party of today probably wouldn't vouch for that as strongly. But that's always been, that was the first thing that attracted me to libertarianism was this, this idea that authority had run amok. And I think as a kid who got arrested a lot and honestly had a pretty, pretty good time of it, frankly, uh, just never had much of an issue. I realized very quickly that the United States had serious, horrifying injustices related to race and criminal justice. And despite the current profile of the uh, so-called Libertarian Party, the official entity, um, the Libertarian Party, Libertarian Principles, it was the only group of people who struck me as talking at all seriously about race and criminal justice in the United States. Well, the American police force do seem to be um, militarizing at a scary rate. Oddly, here in Northern Ireland, the police sort of have uh, de-escalated you know, they've deliberately changed uniforms and changed their vehicles to appear uh, less confrontational. And Northern Ireland is one of the most peaceful places uh, on earth, weirdly. No question. <laughs> the uh, U.S. police forces continue to militarize, are now being encouraged to by all parts of the political spectrum. There was a really bright moment in 2020 when it looked like there might be some serious progress on criminal justice, and we got none of that. We just got a lot of sort of woke whining and uh, impassioned ed editorials. Was the three strikes a big one? Three strikes laws, I mean, I think I don't want to fall into the minutia of uh, how things, uh, how criminal justice works. Oh, because I've just heard that the prison population surged with that. Certainly. Where you, if you commit the same crime three times, 
you get to go to jail. Certainly. I think there were some federal level uh, three strikes laws. There were also some state level three strikes laws. I don't know to what extent and in which jurisdictions those have been rolled back. My point was that in 2020, it seemed all of a sudden like the whole country really cared um, about these issues and we were going to get some real change. And instead, we got a bunch of whining and we just got the backlash without actually any progress on these issues. It's a bit like having a prime minister that's very low tax and she's in for a month. So you get all the downsides of low tax with no actual low taxes. Uh, we're talking about Liz Truss here. Is that the... Uh... Yeah, it felt like we got all the badness and none of the goodness. Yeah, the the financial profile for the country got sort of blown out of proportion. My point was, in bringing up criminal justice, is that... Nothing happened. libertarian approach to criminal justice... Oh, nothing basically materialized. There was just a lot of arguments on TV. True, uh, but generally the libertarian point on par uh, approach to criminal justice has been right for, for decades, continues to be right. Um, and the dominating uh, issue of my 20s was foreign intervention, the war in Iraq. And the Libertarian Party was, uh, or Republicans with libertarian instincts, uh, especially after the election of Barack Obama, but even before the election of Barack Obama, were really the only people in the national political discussion who were saying anything at all that was remotely sane. They were just just correct. Uh, one of the, the moments that really sticks in my mind is uh, Ron Paul in a Republican debate in the sort of 2008 or so when the moderator asked him about his views on 9-11 and he sort of lightly implied that, well, actually 9-11 uh, happened because we are too involved in the Middle East and an outraged, outraged Rudy Giuliani who at that point, hilariously, Rudy Giuliani was seen as the front runner uh, for the Republican presidential nomination, demanded that Ron Paul uh, retract his, his, his terrible, terrible statement. And Ron Paul just sort of uh, blithely ignored him and continued on. Um, it would probably be an overstatement to say that that moment is what punctured uh, Rudy Giuliani's campaign. Uh, he actually probably... Apart from himself. Yeah, I, th I think in that moment and for the uh, Republican base at that point, it was probably seen as a win for Giuliani. But I'll always remember that moment and just the incredible courageous stand um, by Ron Paul. So when I found myself in my mid-20s horrified by what the Iraq invasion had yielded, horrified by the just ineptness and, uh, frankly, evil of U.S. policy in reaction to 9-11. I saw Ron Paul and figures like that who were willing to stand up to uh, an insane consensus, Republican and Democratic. I saw them as heroes and was, was proud to call myself uh, a libertarian uh, for a period of time. And the Libertarian Party is still... Again, so today's Libertarian Party has warped in all kinds of weird directions, but libertarian principles of anti-intervention, freedom of, you know, freedom from uh, undue police interference in your life, just freedom more broadly, those principles will always be appealing. But I think what I fell out of uh, love with uh, as I simply got older and experienced more of national politics, became exposed to more of how the United States works, how U.S. politics works and has worked for the past 40 years, I very much fell out of that idea, that, that loud idea that uh, you had mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Rory, this idea that, well, you know, true libertarianism has never been tried or what have you. And I would assert that it actually kind of has. In fact, the dominating ideas in U.S. politics over the past 40 years have been libertarian. There's certainly some massive exceptions in that it's certainly not libertarian to go into the Middle East and uh, try to uh, recreate Switzerland or whatever the heck it was that we were trying to do. It's not some libertarian to double, triple, quadruple down on a uh, system of racialized criminal justice. But in most other arenas in American life, specifically economic life, uh, over the past 40 years, 
the theories, the programs, the approaches, and the policies have been deeply, deeply libertarian, and it hasn't worked out so great. How large is the libertarian bloc within the Republican Party? So it would seem the libertarian party is far too small and amateurish to really achieve anything. And that's, that is entirely the case. There's, there's, no, there's virtually no power in the libertarian party itself. I think Gary Johnson, or was there another candidate that was... Uh, Perhaps Gary Johnson was the most successful libertarian candidate ever, but no libertarian candidate has ever gotten more than, you know, two percent uh, of the vote uh, for president. There's never been a libertarian in Congress. What there have been have been a succession. Well, there's Rand Paul in the Senate, uh, but there's been a succession, almost a caucus of libertarian-minded uh, folks in the House of Representatives, so the, the House of Congress in the United States that has no power. I'm um, thinking of, what's Massey's first name? I can't remember. Uh, Massey's an example. Uh, Justin Amash. It's not so much the Libertarian Party or the very vocal, vocally committed to libertarianism Republicans that have had this influence. It's, it's from the very top. I mean, Ronald Reagan talked about uh, a lot of very libertarian ideals. His whole appeal was, what's that classic Ronald Reagan line? It's the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It's honestly really hard to understand from the perspective of somebody who was born in 1979 or thereafter. Uh, I was born in 1979. It's really hard to grasp how much more involved in economic and social life the federal government of the United States was before 1980. There are, of course, metrics where uh, the federal government has become more involved, specifically those two arenas we talked about at the beginning, you know, criminal justice and uh, foreign intervention. Um, and there are places where those libertarian principles are still very useful. But Reagan came in and changed a lot of things dramatically. Actually, a lot of people argue that Jimmy Carter did as well. But there was a tremendous shift by Democrats and Republicans in a Carter administration, Reagan administration, away from the FDR approach to governing the United States. Uh, Richard Nixon is a great example. You sort of, I think you don't, this is actually a good way to answer your question, Rory. You don't, um, it's not the folks in the Republican Party who say, I'm a libertarian, rah-rah libertarian. You can see how libertarian the Republican Party is today by comparing a Republican today to, say, the policies of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, I believe, founded the Environmental Protection Agency. Richard Nixon had price controls in the economy while he was president. Uh, Richard Nixon was a big fan of big government because Richard Nixon... Wasn't he about to bring in the metric system? I don't know anything about that, but I, I suppose that's... <laughs> and then uh, something happened to him. I'm not too sure. Uh, I, I suppose that's that's a possibility. But because Nixon, a Republican president, seen you know at the time as a conservative uh, Nixon president, though many conservatives would, would dispute that, uh, was willing to use government in ways that Carter and Reagan did away with to the point where it's like if you read about the domestic actions of Richard Nixon or Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican president uh, of the 1950s, you read about that today and you're like, wow, I mean, this is like this is like Europe level stuff or this is, you know, this is this is it just seems far beyond modern Europe. Uh, in, You'd be called a radical socialist today on Fox? Absolutely. Like, like extraordinarily different just sense of government and what government could do. Um, part of it is in just real basics of the way that government regulation was eviscerated from place to place, uh, from agency to agency. Uh, antitrust, you know, the uh, the whole realm of competition law, the idea going back centuries in the United States that the government had a role in uh, curbing the power of a economic organization if it became too powerful. Antitrust has been essentially dead 
in the United States from the Reagan administration until the Biden administration. It's now coming back in a small way. Um, but, you know, antitrust, um, just the the way the approach to taxes, uh, the approach to essentially everything has been so fundamentally anti-government. And I think it is fair to characterize being generally anti-government as libertarian. But the government is also much stronger now. It seems like it's, a, as you talked about with the police forces, they're significantly more likely to break into your house and shoot you now? Well, the government is tremendous, and I think this is the key distinction, the government is tremendously more powerful when it comes to the weak. And I think that's what libertarianism has produced. Now, I don't want to you know, condemn libertarianism entirely. I think that there are a lot of great instincts around libertarianism, but when it goes as far as it has over the past 40 years, I think we've learned that libertarian government produces a government that is incredibly brutal towards the weak and lets the strong get away with absolutely everything. So this freedom that is given is given to the top 20% in the United States. It is given to shareholders. It is given to the wealthy. Well, it reminds me of this FTX guy is probably going to be in house arrest when if you went into a bank to steal $100, I'm sure you're probably at least going to get to a, a proper jail. Yeah, FTX is absolutely uh, relevant. You know, the, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the, the sort of Neo Madoff uh, in charge of FTX, uh, this sort of uh, crypto criminal, um, is, is a great example. I don't, I don't know if he's going to get off as easily as, as some expect, but... Or at least a, a golf course prison. The chances, the chances are high. It's probably, like, minimum security prisons are still pretty scary, and I doubt he'll get anywhere near that. When you consider the huge amounts of money he's embezzled, I mean, well, we we shall see, we shall see. But the 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 point is, and I think that white collar crime in general is something that you used to be able to be prosecuted for. Uh, that is something. There are still a few white collar criminal prosecutions uh, in this country, but but you really have to go out of your way. Exactly, you really really have to go out of your way. But I think it's absolutely true that the libertarian bent of politics over the past 40 years has failed to deliver anything for the weak. Um, but for the rich, the wealthy, uh, it has crafted something of a paradise. Uh, certainly the Patriot Act is nightmarish. The surveillance powers of uh, the government have gone insane. The whole war on terror complex uh, domestic and international is a horrific, uh, it's, it's a nightmare dystopia from a libertarian perspective. But none of that actually hurts the folks that have power uh, in, in the economy. So, and I think it's, it's also a good point. It's also important to note that all of these incredible excesses have happened under uh, a series of governments, Republican and Democrat, that have absorbed a lot of libertarian principles. The fundamental idea that actually government isn't good for much um, and can't isn't capable of much is, uh, I think, something that's been absorbed by both Republicans and Democrats and has been the dominating idea of the past 40 years of American government. Do you think we're at a high watermark? Well, I think I can already see it receding in some places. Antitrust specifically is kind of fascinating, and I think that all sectors of the U.S. political sphere are angry enough at the big technology companies that we're finally beginning to see some meaningful slippage in this old libertarian pro-corporate instinct that has been the settled law and not necessarily the settled law, but the set settled Regular, regulatory perspective of the past 40 years. Uh, specifically, a woman named Lena Khan was nominated by Joe Biden to head the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, Joe Biden has generally been somewhat timid in a lot of his appointments. Lena Khan was not a timid appointment. She's a very young, I think she's probably five, 10 young, years younger than I am, uh, legal scholar who made her career by 
creating a rationale for going after Amazon. This is not to say that Amazon has been gone after yet, but she laid a lot of the legal groundwork. She's treating them a lot like uh, General Electric got treated. Is that the idea? They're too big. They're a monopoly. They need to be broken up into smaller elements. I'm uh, sadly, I'm really, I'm not as familiar with the uh, the intricacies, but I do believe that for most of the big tech companies, some kind of breakup is the ideal goal uh, for uh, current uh, antitrust advocates. Uh, Lena Khan is in power, in a position of kind of extraordinary power at the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, what's interesting about her being in power and exercising power is that the United States business community, the Chamber of Commerce, shareholders, what have you, has become very accustomed to the Federal Trade Commission not actually doing anything, again, under both Republican and Democratic uh, leadership. So it's not like Lena Khan needs new laws or new regulatory authorities to do what she's been doing. Uh, she just needs to use the powers that the Federal Trade Commission has had for much of a century uh, and simply haven't been used for the past 40, 50 years. What would you think her first appointment will be? Or is she still not really fully utilized her tools? Oh, she's been in power. I mean, she is the head of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, the most uh, interesting proposal that she's had over the past week, uh, because they do seem to come every month, doing away with non-compete clauses uh, in U.S. employment contracts. This is a quite devious thing, which I believe is unknown in Europe, uh, which is an employer can say that, well, if you leave this job, you're not allowed to work in any other plausible competitor. You're not allowed to work for any plausible competitor. It's quite common in tech. Yes, uh, it's common in tech, but it's something absurd like 30 million employees in the United States are apparently governed by some sort of non-compete clause. If it's applied here, it'll be very specific. You can't work for this competitor for the next year, say. But generally, it's a very, you know, high-level job. It wouldn't be more working class. Well, yeah, that that sort of thing, I think you can make uh, a case for as an employer. Sure, like if, if you're working... They're our big competitor. We have trade secrets. We don't want them getting yeah, them. Yeah, sure. If you're a high-level uh, engineer for GM... You know, maybe you, there should be a, a bit of a limitation of you going to be, a, or maybe not. I don't know. It's an open question to me. The thing is that what we've had in the United States, which is a theme across really all layers of regulation and economics under the sort of libertarian uh, world we've lived in for the past 40 years, is that business took this non-compete thing that, that might make sense for, you know, maybe a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of jobs in the United States and applied it to like 37 million people. Apparently a, a lot of nurses, this applies to a lot of nurses, so My God. hospital groups are saying, mm, and nurses are very in demand, so this essentially was a way to make it much, much harder for nurses to leave their job. But it also kind of defeats the concept of a job. You get a job, you get experience and trained and so far, and then you are able to then leave and do another job that suits you, pays better, etc. So you're basically saying you can't, you're trapped in the first job that takes you. Yeah, so it's a fundamentally anti-freedom thing. And that's that's the, that's the contradiction here. Now, a libertarian would say, well, of course, as a libertarian, I'm terribly, terribly against uh, these, these non-compete clauses. But I also hate government. And I also don't think that there should be a federal trade commission. There can seem to be a contrarian element in libertarianism just when i seen the um the debates they had for the libertarian party quite often one would say well we need some laws against pedophilia and then everyone like points at them and says he wants a law he's not libertarian so there's a strange sort of self-defeating contrarianism involved a hundred percent and i think that that's come through in government i think it's so yeah so i think i'm sure that reason magazine right now uh, has some this is the libertarian mouthpiece. As you mentioned with the pedophilia mentioned, the, the modern libertarian party in the United States has really, really gone off the rails, I think, since Gary Johnson got out of there. But Reason is a you know rich person-funded, reasonable mouthpiece for libertarianism, and I'm sure 
they have some article saying, well, these non-compete articles are really are terrible. These non-compete clauses, they're terrible, terrible, shouldn't happen. But they don't believe there should be any government regulatory agency that has the power to stop those things from happening. And that's just one example. It's There are so many examples. Like, if you really want to cut government, now I'm not saying by falling away from my old libertarianism, I'm not saying that everything the U.S. government does is good and should be but should be celebrated and expanded. To the contrary, I think there's still vast swaths of the federal government that aren't doing anything useful. But the approach of the you know quasi-libertarian Republican Party over the past four decades has been to remove any um, ability to actually change government in a positive way. That that that's the extraordinary thing is if you hate government so much that you never learn anything about it, you actually can't even cut government. You can't do effective government shrinking if you don't put people in place to do that shrinking who actually respect and understand the power of government. We see this over and over and over again. I think most graphically this week in the absurd spectacle uh, at the opening of the U.S. Congress. Absolutely proving, I think, to anybody uh, who was still doubting it, that the Republican Party is incapable of government. And it's actually the most libertarian-leaning sectors of the Republican Party that are creating this problem. Can you explain to me exactly what's happening? I'm not sure really anybody can, but there is this important constitutional role. There is this important constitutional role in the U.S. government called the Speaker of the House. Uh, it is not a factional role in the Constitution. It has become a factional role, in a, a party-based role, uh, in the years since. The Speaker of the House is elected by the House of Representatives at the outset of every two-year-long congressional session. This year, Kevin McCarthy uh, walked into this, uh, what's expected to be an anointing of the, the majority leader of the Republican Party, as they had just newly won a majority in these last congressional elections, but it's not working uh, because there are enough radicals, uh, usually libertarian-leaning radicals in the Republican Party, want to create problems. These are folks that so belittle, that have so little respect for the idea that government is at all useful that they seem content to just keep a government from being established. Uh, the U.S. legislature is pretty important, and I, I guess constitutional scholars can disagree, but the House of Representatives, the lower house of that legislature, is arguably the most important part of uh, the U.S. government. And for the past three or four days now, is it now? It's, I think we're on the third day as we record. Uh, and I, you know, by the time this uploads next Monday, I wouldn't be surprised if we still don't have resolution. We might. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has failed to win the votes of the members of his own party. Part of this is an after effect of how badly the Republicans did. They were expecting uh, to win a large majority in the House of Representatives. Action, you know, actually, I haven't looked into it. I think they're only, you know, five to ten uh, ahead of the Democrats. So this, uh, so I don't know if it's the, still the Freedom Caucus, but... The, so they have a narrow lead? Uh, they have a very narrow lead. So the whatever the whack job caucus of the Republican Party is called in this iteration uh, has much more power. He's, uh, currently, he's set to lose the 13th Speaker vote. Extraordinary. But some of these rebels have uh, decided to vote for him. So yeah, 13 attempts. You see, what, but what happens when we don't have a functioning government, uh, as I would argue we haven't had uh, in some respects for 40 years, what happens when we don't have a functioning government is that government goes further and further amok, causing crises that end up requiring more government. I think that libertarian-leaning folks, Republicans, 
uh, fiscally conservative people more broadly are entirely right to be aghast at what has happened over the past 14 years with the Federal Reserve and the money printing and uh, the Treasury. Yes, but everything should be the gold standard rope. Well, uh, we can we can talk about that in a minute or two. Uh, I would disagree with that very highly, but but I think folks are right to be aghast at at what has happened with all that. But I think what we're not seeing is enough libertarian self-reflection because it was the libertarian instinct to deregulate everything. Yes, even the Clinton administration was victim to this libertarian ideology, the removal of Glass-Steagall, uh, the removal of a wide range of other financial regulatory uh, provisions under the Reagan, Clinton, and second Bush administration, actually probably the first Bush administration as well, the removal of government, the in furtherance of libertarian principles of setting everything free, set everything free to create a crisis that basically destroyed the modern conception of money and markets and central banking and how that's supposed to work throughout the entire world. Uh, creating vast new roles for government. Like, if you want to limit government, you need government. Uh, that might sound like a contradiction, but it's not. It was that realization. Well, it has to exist at some level. It can't just sort of phantom away and everything kind of run okay. Exactly. And I think the idea that it's just going to phantom away is something that has been motivating the Republican Party and its vocally, more vocally and less vocally libertarian wings for years now. This whole idea that like a government shutdown is going to somehow yield positive results in terms of a better run government is, it, it's, it's ludicrous. It's insane, but it's something that they have continued to pursue through at least three presidential administrations now. I can't recall, actually, I think even back during the Clinton administration in the 1990s, though I don't have too many specific memories of it, the Republicans were pulling this song and dance uh, where they, you know, threatened to shut down the government uh, in order to get concessions uh, from a Democratic president. Um, I think it was a big failure under Clinton. Um, I think it was uh, pretty successful under Obama for the Republicans, uh, probably, uh, unfortunately, probably because they were pulling it on a black guy this time. I think it's going to be a lot less successful under Biden, actually. Is it because Biden's such an old hand at this? He kind of knows all the tricks to pull? Sure. And the, well, there was this amazing, I think it was a Jesse Waters clip on Fox News where he didn't actually come out and say this, but he was just like, yeah, I, it is really frustrating. We, we just can't get the base as angry at Biden as we could at Clinton and Obama. And it's the subtext, of course, being it's it's just hard to get people as angry at a white man as you can get them. It's it's hard to get the Republican base as angry uh, at, at a white man as you can uh, at a black guy or a woman. That is a sad way of putting it. It's a, well, yeah, I mean, Clinton, Clinton won from every Republican attempt at a government shutdown. Um, Obama seems to have lost on balance. If you look at Democratic uh, congressional representation over his time in power, and uh, I kind of feel like Biden's probably going to uh, win. Uh, for some very grim assumptions about, uh, I mean, not just the Republican base, but also the way media treats uh, these figures. It seems like he's been able to lower the um, inflation to some extent. Well, I sure. I mean, crediting presidents for inflation. Just that was the big guy he was demonized for a couple of months ago when it seems kind of like there's less talk of it now. A absolutely, because inflation is definitely falling. It's a bit like Obamacare. It was the devil, and now it's sort of just forgotten about. Well, it's forgotten about because it's, it's fading away, and it just is an indication of how little power the presidents uh, have over inflation. I think that you could make a case that uh, his announcement on debt relief was an inflationary, an inflationary action, and it doesn't even matter that the courts stopped it. Uh, just the the mere announcement of it would have inflationary impacts, or what have you. It doesn't matter. It uh, inflation is falling anyway. So was it seeing them get all this power and get all the worst elements of uh, libertarianism? Is that what turned you off to well, it? No, it's it's the it's the realization that while there are some arenas, I would argue foreign intervention, uh, I would argue U.S. criminal justice, 
where extreme, very simple solutions would be positive, uh, like pull out of the Middle East entirely or legalize or decriminalize a vast range of controlled substances or end civil asset forfeiture. There, there, there are arenas where libertarian politics would have really positive impacts and the extremity, the sort of punk rock of them would work. But those, of course, never happen because they don't actually serve people in power, whereas the extreme philosophies uh, governing many other realms, specifically in domestic politics, you know, economics, this, that, and the other thing, have only served to make the powerful more powerful and to make problems worse. They've managed to immiserate uh, 80% of the U.S. population. Um, I'm not saying 80% of the U.S. public is miserable, but I'm saying that they have lost a lot of ground. Don't want to dive into the, the statistics here, whether or not certain wages have stagnated in this place or the other. I don't think anybody disputes that 40 years of libertarian government have resulted in a plutocracy or a top 20% that has wealth and opportunities beyond the imaginings of any former group, whereas at the bottom 20%, we've got folks dying in droves to the point where U.S. Uh, life expectancy is falling. All of these statistics can be gamed in many, many different ways, but I think on balance, the story that I'm presenting here, where 40 years of libertarian government in the United States has primarily served the rich and powerful and has actually made problems worth worse, I think that story is accurate. And uh, it's not something that I came to willingly. Uh, you can find even on this channel, uh, you can find uh, videos from the, the first years of me running this channel full time. You can find videos that are very sympathetic to sort of anti-tax, you know, anti-government things, but I've fallen away from it just because of what I've seen. Is that the emphasis behind the name, More Freedom Foundation? A absolutely. It's a, a very libertarian-leaning name. I haven't changed it uh, because I like the brand. I like the approach. Uh, I also don't necessarily want to uh, let go of the idea that freedom is a good thing. <laughs> My definition of freedom may have shifted a bit, uh, but uh, I'm still for more freedom. Uh, but it is it is interesting looking at how my views have changed, and they have changed because I've gotten older, and I have read more, and I have seen Do more. Do you feel a smaller government, which in America would focus more on states, would that be a way of getting closer to a, a libertarian idea? I spent a lot of years uh, advocating for that and thinking about that, Rory, and sure, that sounds like a goal. But that goal to me sounds as likely as like, you know what, we need a state, we need, we need a, a, a government without police forces, you know, like that, that strikes me as a goal, you know, ideally, Rory, like, yes, we'd all have government. It might last a week. Yeah, ex exactly. So, and I think that's another problem of libertarianism is it's, it's got a lot of these sort of aspirations, this roadmap for, hey, it's a lot like communism, actually. It's like, oh, we're going to get to this, this society where all the bad things are gone, all coercion is gone, all classes are gone, all, uh, you know, we're going to live in Rock Candy Mountain or what have you. The roadmap for getting there is quite, quite limited. Switzerland is a country that seems like it's able to balance power. It doesn't, it has a lot more focused on provinces as opposed to, you know, the government itself, which is fairly weak. And the joke is quite often people don't even know who the, who's in charge of Switzerland because they're such a, a minnow compared to local council local government so would that be a template for america well, switzerland's great i think they have they don't they have a, a a panel of five presidents or something along those lines like that that's who the actual head of state is it's, it's a fascinating country uh but it's also a country that has developed that way for specific historical reasons the the thing is right under the current u.s constitution the current set of laws States and localities have extraordinary power, extraordinary capability to uh, exert themselves and bring about positive results. Um, but people are just getting less and less interested in it.
I think in Switzerland, they're doing a much better job of holding on to the vestiges of differing levels of power and control. But even even among the politically savvy uh, nowadays, Rory, we're focused on national and international politics. I've lived in New York City for, uh, gosh, five years now. Wow. Yes, I've lived in New York City for five years now. And every one of those years, Rory, I've been like, I need to really learn about my city council person. I need to learn in depth about... Well, that's where the real power is. I mean, it, for, for a lot of things, yes. And and yes, and I, that that's what you know my politics and my instincts are. But you know what? I have a platform. Uh, I live in a city where actually if I started doing content on New York City politics, it could be more successful than a lot of my other content because it's, you know, it's a city of millions, a city of billions filled with a lot of nerds. But I just don't do it. I just keep not doing it. There are so many forces behind focusing on national politics, focusing on international politics that make it so hard, even for a reasonably knowledgeable person like myself, to actually just go to the local city council meeting. Um, so yeah, 100%. I, you know, I, should, I should be the change I want to see in the world and go to my city council meeting. But they make it deliberately boring. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. That's their most powerful weapon. True enough. True enough. But I think that the... So it's easy to talk about third parties. It's easy to talk about... Um, using the that's the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution uh, in the Bill of Rights, the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution talks about how states should have much more power. Any powers that are not in the Constitution, explicitly going to the federal government, should be state power. So he, he, it makes sense that it's good to talk about these things. These are you know possibilities. They are things to think about. But where's the roadmap? How do we get from here to there? What are the countries are periods in history that the libertarians really pulled on to and admire? That's a great question. Um, I think they used to really love Hong Kong. I remember that was uh, very exciting to them. So British Hong Kong, would that be? Yes, British Hong Kong. They used to love uh, British Hong Kong. Um, it, it's funny that like, I think a lot of the examples are sort of vaguely authoritarian. You know, Singapore's... Well, if the authoritarian's on your side, then it does feel very free. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's very telling and very sad, and sort of how we have the... Singapore can just be whatever you want it to be. It seems there's a, there, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, and I, I think the problem is that a lot of the now there are very serious, very weird uh, libertarian thinkers, Murray Rothbard, this, that, and the other thing. But you, if you look at like Reason Magazine, a lot, and you know, not, I'm sure there's very serious, uh, very committed libertarian uh, folks there, but a lot of what it produces is just pro-business, you know? It's, it's just, you know, how can we make big businesses safer? And I rebelled for a very long period of time against this idea that corporate power mattered or, like, was a thing because especially, you know, I, you know, I had these very in-my-face examples of the evils of government power, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the war on terror everywhere. You just thought, how many battalions do these... Uh companies have and since they had none you thought they had no power exactly exactly um but like it, as i get older as i have watched the same arguments uh over and over and over again the same sort of things go in the same circles and sort of begun to realize that oh actually the, the there's a there's a reason that these things go in the same circles it's because these the same people are being paid to say the same things on the same channels that recycle the same ideas over and over and over again. So what would be the biggest area of government that you think could do with change? Would it be policing? Oh, it's the Pentagon, obviously. Yeah, we yeah we need... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm subtle about that, and I think most libertarians would still agree with me on that. And, you know, so I don't want to say, and I think well, people go, I mean, there's the, what's the classic uh, line on libertarians? You know, libertarians are like house cats. You know, they, they think they're uh, individual, you know, free monarchs when in reality they're on, uh, completely dependent on a whole range of systems that they, they can't even begin to understand. Uh, I think that's very amusing, but I think that that's also uh, quite unfair. I think that libertarian instincts and libertarian approaches make sense 
in many policy realms, many contexts, and many eras. And I think that's the key thing, many eras. Like there are eras, I think the 1970s, after 40 years of FDR um, type approaches to government, in the 1970s, libertarianism and libertarian instincts were vital. Libertarian policies were needed. There was a need for deregulation. There was a need to unleash capital. It actually, you know, richer folks actually did need to be cut a break um, in the United States in the 1970s. But for the past 40 years, we've had nothing but libertarianism. I mean, Milton Friedman, the economist god that we've all been following for the past 40 years, was a very explicit and open libertarian. Regulatory approaches have been libertarian. It's I'm not saying that libertarianism is bad. I'm not saying that there's, you know, government is always good and everyone should respect and bow down to it. I'm simply saying that We've been much more libertarian than anybody likes to acknowledge for the past 40 years. And now it's time to try something different, to try a different approach. Um, and we're just, I think we might be getting there in some ways, but it's frustrating to not even get a speaker. Well, that's, I mean, I, we'll see how that, we'll see how that works out. I think the Republicans are going to find that their antics that were so successful against Obama are going to be looked at a lot less kindly. Uh, by the electorate under uh, Biden, um, but we'll see about that. So no, I think we're, we're going in the right direction. Things that I do find kind of disturbing are like crypto. I mean, crypto is a fundamentally a very, very libertarian thing. Well, the flip side of that is everything's recorded. So it's sort of terrible as a libertarian ideal as well. Well, it depends on the currency. Some of it's on blockchain, some of it's not. The, it's private money. All the big, All the big names are. So everything you've ever bought... We can see that's an argument against being used for criminal purposes, but it's not an argument against the idea that it's private money. Private money is essentially saying we don't trust the government to run money. But it means you can still tax it at, at some degree. You could theoretically keep it only in crypto, but it has to land at some point, And that's usually when the government's getting involved. Sure, but why would you need to do it with a different currency? It's a fundamentally libertarian instinct. It's not been going well. So more freedom for everyone and not just the wealthy? Yeah, it's not a bad way of looking at it. Not a bad way of looking at it. No. So, yeah, I just felt like, basically, I had a dinner party conversation where I kind of wanted to light into a libertarian, but I felt it would be impolite. So, so I decided to do it here on a podcast. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better and music provided by Kevin McLeod. Uh, hello, Rory. How's it? Let me start over. Mm. Uh.